Good morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah. We're going to continue our study on the minor prophets. If you get the the leather uh, pew Bible, it's page 788. My name's Hugh, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church at Cherrydale. My primary responsibility is to oversee our small groups, and that's something that we believe very strongly in. If you're not in a group, I would love to help you get connected to a group. This week, we are on week eight out of the 12 minor prophets. Next week, we'll look at Habakkuk and then the final stretch. Um, let's begin in, in verse one. Zephaniah says, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Amnon, king of Judah. Now, here's a, a little bit of the backstory on this, this genealogy. Zephaniah is prophesying in Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, at the time of King Josiah. He happens to be a contemporary of the prophet Jeremiah. Now, uh, Josiah's great-great-grandfather was King Hezekiah. You might remember that name from the Bible because he was a great and godly leader. He created lots of good reform. He restored true worship to Israel. Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, was the most wicked and longest-standing king of Judah. He undid everything his father did. He set up high places for the worship of Baal throughout the country. Even in God's own temple, he set up sites for Baal worship. Manasseh's son was wicked like his father, and he only reigned for two years because he was assassinated. Then at the age of eight, Josiah comes to the throne of Judah. Josiah is mentioned in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1, but you probably also know him from 2 Kings as, as the king that found the book of the law. 2 Kings 22, starting in verse 1, says, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And then it gives us some information about his mother and uh, other family. And, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he walked in all the ways of David, his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. This text also says that 18 years, 18 years into his reign, he sends one of his messengers to the priests. He gives him a task, he wants to talk about some money. The messenger comes back and says, oh, by the way, the priest found a book. He's cleaning up in the, in the temple, spring cleaning time, and he finds a book. Then we see in, in verse 11 of 2 Kings, that 2 Kings 22, it says, When the king heard the words of this book, he has it read to him. When he hears the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahakim the son of Shaphan and all these others. says, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. This is how bad it had gotten in Judah under Manasseh and Amnon. They didn't even know where God's book was. It had been tucked away in some corner and it was missing. 
They had no idea what God's instruction, what he has commanded his people to do. He had, they had no testimony. And so Hilkiah found, finds a book, and not just any book, the book containing the authoritative living words of the living God. And let's not miss how one is supposed to respond to God's word. Josiah provides the example for us. He rips his kingly robes in humility and repentance. When we come face to face with the word, when it's our position versus God's position in in his word, we are the ones that always must humble ourselves under the word. And so Josiah sets about to do the great work of bringing reform to Judah. And Zephaniah is one of the main agents of bringing this reform. His book is set up in three short chapters. Chapter one is about the coming judgment. Um, Chapter two is a call for repentance and a description of the judgment on the surrounding nations. And chapter three is the promise of restoration. So if you're taking notes, first point is a summary of chapter one. God's judgment of sin. God's judgment of sin. We'll pick back up in Zephaniah 1, starting in verse 2. The Lord says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. God is about to set himself against Judah, against these idolaters, to wipe out the remnant of Baal. Josiah had done the work to tear down the high places, but he couldn't do the work to restore the hearts of the people. So we're going to see that there were two chief sins in chapter 1 that the Lord is speaking to Judah about. The first one is idolatry. Verse 5, we see that there are people worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars. It's the worship of the creation rather than the creator. Paul calls this in Romans 1, an exchange of the glory of God for the glory of created things. In verse 5, people are swearing both by God and by Milcom, the god of the neighboring Ammonites. They were guilty of idolatry, and secondly, they were guilty of arrogance, pride, and self-sufficiency. You can sum all those up in in pride. Verse 6 says that, that some turn back from following God, and they neither seek nor inquire of him. God has become an afterthought. This is the context for David and April McWhite serving in the Czech Republic. 500 years ago, this is the seat of the Reformation. The gospel is exploding. People are gladly giving their lives for the sake of Christ's word going forth, for his tr- the truth of the Bible being upheld. And now, God is an afterthought. They, they have no category to, why would I seek? Why would I need to inquire of God? And this is the situation of Judah. This is what's going on in God's people. It doesn't even occur to them that they would need to seek or inquire. We see the, the sin of pride in chapter 3, verse 2. It says, talking about those in, in Judah, that she listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. 
She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. The proud won't listen to anybody. They won't be corrected by anybody. They don't trust God. They trust themselves to figure things out. These two sins of idolatry and pride are terrible partners. The proud are unwilling to bow the knee before God. They're unwilling to relinquish control, authority on their own lives. And, and so instead, they, instead of humbling on themselves before God, they, they bow before a God of their own liking and their own image. Now, this is not just a word for Judah 600 years before Jesus. It's, it's a word for us at this time and in this place. You see, we didn't show up this morning and punch the worship time clock. We don't begin to worship on Sunday morning, and we won't cease to worship on our way out the door. This is how God has made us. There's something in, in our soul that is meant to respond to greatness, to beauty, to ascribe worth to something bigger and outside of us. It's how we're made. It's what we do. We all worship all the time. John Calvin says, From this we may gather that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity as it sluggishly plods, indeed is overwhelmed with the crassest ignorance. It conceives an unreality and an empty appearance as God. We have these internal desires to worship, and often we make good things to become ultimate God things. I read this week a quote says, There may be no more arrogant man on the face of the earth than the man bowing humbly before the God he has created in his own image. Church, beware of these, these terrible partners of pride and idolatry. Now, the remainder of chapter 1 in Zephaniah is a description of how terrible the judgment upon Judah will be. The repeated refrain is the day of the Lord, that day. And the description is, is terrifying. We'll see in verse 15. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Let's be reminded this morning that God is completely other. He is transcendent, he is holy like no other, and he cannot tolerate wickedness. He cannot wink at sin like a grandfather to a mischievous child. And so Zephaniah says, be silent. The day's coming, and it's near, and there's no escape. There's nothing you can do to hide. There's no getting around it. All this idolatry, all this pride, all this spiritual complacency is going to be punished. However, there is a significant turn as we look in, in chapter 2. Second point, we move from God's uh, judgment of sin to God's call for repentance. God's call for repentance. Look at verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. Who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. 
Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Guys, this is a huge point of the whole book. This is what Zephaniah is calling Judah to do. It's not too late. It's not too late for you to repent, to humble yourself, to seek righteousness, to seek the Lord. It sounds exactly like 2 Chronicles 7, 14. The Bible says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Zephaniah wants to see this reform. He wants to see his, his kinsmen repent and come back to the Lord. If they don't, destruction will come soon. And we know from history that about 30 years after this book, that the Babylonians come in and take Judah. They destroy Jerusalem. The remainder of chapter 2 is a description of God's judgment coming on these neighboring nations. We see then uh, in verses 4 through 7 that the Philistines to the east will be destroyed. Moab and Amnon to the west in verses 8 through 11. The Ethiopians to the south in verse 12. Assyria to the north in verses 13 through 15. Now, why, why would God take the time to... Speak to Judah about what's going to happen around them. He's making it clear. Judah, you can't just pack up your bags and move next door. Because they're, they're getting theirs too. Because sadly, they look just like you in their pride and in their idolatry. I think it's also to show that, that, that there's no refuge for Judah except him alone. Except in God alone. And he's inviting them. Humble yourself. Seek me. Seek righteousness. And while his people have sinned, living independently from God, there's still, uh, still hope. He won't wipe them out entirely. Look at verses 7 and 9 of chapter 2. The seacoast shall become a possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the house of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. Verse 9, Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. Judgment's coming. It's going to happen. But God says, I'm not going to wipe people out. I'm not going to wipe the nation out entirely. There will be a remnant of those that are called by my name, that humble themselves, that seek righteousness, that seek me. Now, the Lord requires this humble pursuit of him. But you see that he supplies what he demands in this passage. What the Lord demands, he supplies. God demands perfection of us, and he supplies the Lord Jesus to live the perfect life for us. God demands payment for sin, and God substituted his own son as the perfect substitute, the perfect wrath bearer that we deserve. God demands righteousness, and he supplies the perfect righteousness of Christ, who's been attributed to our account. He demands this, and he supplies it in this text. Point number three, God's provision 
of salvation. So how, do, how is God going to do it? How is he going to demand humble, repentant pursuit of him? And how does he supply it? We see it in verse 9 of chapter 3. This is how he will secure his remnant of godly men and women for himself. He says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. God knows the condition of our heart. He knows the condition of Judah's here. So he says, I will change their hearts so that they will call upon the name of the Lord. See again the beautiful interplay of what God demands, how he graciously initiates, and how we respond from that. See another example of God supplying what he demands. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Conversely, only those that call upon the name of the Lord are to be saved. And God knows that we of ourselves don't call. We don't do that. So he changes our hearts. He says, I'll change the speech of, their, of these peoples so that they will call. And that's what he does. And he's got these dispersed children all over. See in verse 11. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Church, this is, this is why we have to take the Great Commission seriously. This is why when he says, go, make disciples, teach them, this is, this is why we do it, because he has sons and daughters dispersed. He has children around that are cut off, and we are to speak the hope of the gospel so that people can respond, so that people can then hear the truth and respond and call to God. His grace and mercy are enough to cover the, the shame of our sin that, that you and I deserve, that Judah deserves. And we'll see that these that have escaped, have, that they've escaped from God's judgment, they've also been called into God's joy. Look in verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Three points of application from this sermon. First point, sing aloud. Sing aloud. Last week in small group, folks are gathering in my living room, and someone made the observation, back in chapter one, the instruction is, 
be silent. Judgment's coming, don't talk. I don't want to hear your excuses. But now, conversely, says the command is to sing. The gospel takes us from silence to singing. When you hear God tell you that the shame of your sin, the penalty of your rebellion is removed, that should do something in you that makes you want to well up to sing. It's a joyous thing, right? Church, again, this is, this is a timely word for us. We are a people that care a lot about theology. We care about doctrine. We examine these things closely. We work hard to understand the weighty things of God. We don't want fluffy sermons and we don't want uh, emotionally manipulative services. But if we are not touched, if, if the word, if the doctrine that we study, the theology that we embrace doesn't affect our emotions, doesn't impact our affections, what good is it, church? If, if we're theology, theology, no matter what, and, it, and we create cold hearts, then that is, that is a sign that we don't get it. We don't understand it. We can't continue to buckle down on more theology. The point is, from this theology, from the doctrine, is to paint an increasingly clearer picture of the majesty of Christ, that we would see his beauty and respond and say, what a Savior. What an amazing God. So I'm not telling you, I'm not telling you to try harder at singing louder. That's not the point. I'm telling you to think deeply on who you were, who Jesus is and what he's done in you. Consider Jonathan Edwards, his, his commentary on the religious affections. He says, a man's having much affection does not prove that he has any true religion. But if he has no affection, it proves that he has no true religion. So church, be free and enjoy the freedom that you have to respond to a living God who has rescued you, who has removed the, the shame of your sin. Sing aloud. Secondly, fear not. Fear not. This is what the text says. Now, up to this point in Zephaniah, there's been plenty to fear. The description of the day of the Lord, how, how Judah's going to be taken down. In chapter 2, verse 11, God says, I'll be awesome against the Ammonites. That's terrifying. We should be fearful of that. Some other passages, Le uh, Leviticus 19, 14, You shall fear your God, I am the Lord. Proverbs 3, 7, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Jeremiah 5, 22-24, Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, Let us fear the Lord our God, 
who gives the rain in its season, and the autumn rain, and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. We must fear the Lord. We cannot stand before God as if we're something. Amos 3 says the Lord's like a roaring lion. Who will not fear? The idea, the notion of standing before a God of blazing holiness in my sin terrifies me. It's terrifying. I don't want to face him like that. I don't want to stand before a roaring lion. Think about your reading of the Bible every time an angel comes onto the scene. Men melt like wax before them. And this is an angel. This is one of God's created beings. Every time an angel come, they come, they come on the scene, they have to say, don't fear, fear not. And these are God's creatures. I don't want to stand before the creator in my sin. But he says in Zephaniah here, fear not. Fear not because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. I think this is what Paul has in mind when, when he says in Colossians 2, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Amen. He has removed the judgment against us because he's put it on Christ. And so the gospel here changes everything. It doesn't change God. It changes us in our position before him. We go from guilty rebel to dearly loved son and daughter. We're his forever, forever secure in his hand. Nothing can remove, nothing can touch us. So we can know that he's got it. He's got it under control and we can fear not. We can fear not. Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's His pleasure to give you the kingdom, so fear not. John 12, 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Hebrews 13, 6. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And on and on these commands of do not fear, fear not, they go on. On my way up to Louisville this week, I filled up an entire sheet of a legal pad of Bible references where God says, fear not. This is, this is such a, a comforting word because we are weak. We are forgetful. We are fearful. We succumb to fear, to pressure so quickly. Believer, fear not. Fear not. Little flock, fear not. The Lord is in your midst. He won't ever leave or forsake. Christian, you will never hear your father say goodbye. Ever. Think about the, the greatness of that. You will never hear him say goodbye. Third application. We can rest forever. We can rest forever. Let's look back at verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. 
Christian, you are forever free from having to search for significance because your God rejoices over you just as you are. You're his and he is crazy about you. Let let these old words from Zephaniah wash anew over your soul. God rejoices over you just as you are. You can stop trying to prove yourself because he rejoices over you just as you are. You can stop trying to belittle others to make yourself look better because he rejoices over you just as you are. You can be wronged and hurt and you can suffer terrible disappointment with endurance because he rejoices over you just as you are. And when I read this week that uh, Zephaniah says that, that God will quiet you by his love, I couldn't help but think of of my own kids, the time when Laney and Maddie were babies, and, and Bennett even now, that when a baby's crying, there's something so precious about being a father that you can go and comfort. Now, uh, I'm at my most giving, my most uh, sacrificial, I'm utterly selfless between 1 and 6 a.m. It's at that time that I want more than anything for the blessing of extra cuddles and comfort to be Holly's. I want that joy to be hers. Now, she's a great and loving wife, so she wants that blessing for me as well. But this, just consider the amount of love that you have for your, your children. And it's a drop in the bucket compared to the kind of love that God has for us, the kind of joy he has in us. And he will quiet you in his love. When, when you're, you come to him with your fears, when you come to him with your disappointments, you come to him with your worries, he says, I'm, I'm here. Fear not. This is, this is the kindness and mercy and graciousness of our God. The verse goes on. He says, He will exult over you with loud singing. Christian, this is the basis for our singing to God because He sang first over us. We sing because He sang over us first. It sounds a lot like 1 John 4, right? That that we love because He first loved us. I'm going to pray in just a moment. And when, I, when I'm done, we're going to have a couple of moments of, of silence. I, I want you to reflect. Before the band comes up, I want you to think and reflect. Perhaps you need to be like King Josiah and humble yourself under the word this morning. Perhaps there's something that, that you need to repent. Perhaps it's pride, it's self, self-sufficiency, it's idolatry. Like Josiah, follow his example and humble yourself under that word. Perhaps you need to to sing aloud. That you need to, for the first time in maybe a long time, you need to, to consider how Jesus has loved you in the gospel. That you need to remember what he has done. Where he's saved you from and what he's saved you to. And just respond in thankfulness. Perhaps you need to to remember that his his command is to fear not. That the, the mighty God, 
who's strong, who's always for you, says fear not. And you need to remember that. Perhaps you need to, to believe that you can rest forever knowing that you've got a Father who sings over you, who's in your midst, and who is, wants to quiet you in His love. Let's pray and respond to this mighty God. Father, we are profoundly grateful this morning because we know what we have merited by our lives, by our deeds. And you are rich in mercy towards us. Father, we are grateful for the way that you have revealed yourself to us in your word and perfectly in your Son. And I pray this morning that as we begin to think and pray and contemplate that you would be glorified, that in your kindness you would, you would lead us to repentance, that in your kindness you would prompt our hearts to remember how you have shown yourself gracious and faithful and that we would sing aloud from a heart of gratitude that we would be emboldened this morning to trust you anew and fear not. And that it would produce the kind of peace in our souls that we can rest in you forever. A good Father who loves us and sings over us. We are not worthy of such kindness and love, but we are so thankful for it. We pray in Jesus' name.